No pressure, Pastor Jake, right? <laughs> well, good morning. How we doing, friends? All right. 9, 9 a.m.'s got the energy, right? You guys got your coffee or Mountain Dew or whatever. I don't know, but you know, bring in the energy. I need that. So uh, I want to welcome you, especially if you're joining us online. Thanks for showing up here. There's something really cool, isn't it? Just about being together, like being, worshiping together. And, and I just love being able to do that with, with family. You guys are family, right? We're family. Uh, so yeah, my name's Pastor Jake. I don't work at State Farm, so... Uh, you can be assured of that. I, in the 80s, I grew up with Jake the Snake, right? This was, and now I'm an insurance salesman. So, <laughs> yes, thank you. Uh, we've been in the series called Non-Negotiables. And what we mean by this and what it entails is this idea of when Jesus talks or the scriptures is open, there are many different topics that, that uh, God says, this is like, you can't take this off the table, okay? This is, this is an issue that's non-negotiable, okay? Uh, maybe this thing we can have conversations about or, or this and that, but when it comes to these certain topics, we, we can't take these off the table. These are, these are something you should know. Uh, the first week, Pastor John and Chris, they talked about what that looks like in a marriage, uh, in a family, as you're raising kids. Uh, last week, uh, I opened up and we talked about uh, the Ten Commandments, and we talked about how God gave two tablets, and he did that for a reason. Uh, one set of the tablets, those first five commandments, really describe our relationship upwardly, right, and, and how to love upwardly that we should love upwardly. And that just like the, the Shema's, we're just gonna say, love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, like everything, right? This is, this is what uh, he's asking for. And, and yet the other commandments really point to a relationship that we're gonna talk about outwardly, or like I like to say, withwardly. <laughs> yes, it's a word, I'm gonna make it up right now. Uh, you know, and so this is the challenge, is how do we, uh, love withwardly in, in, the, in our day, in our context, in our time. Uh, how do we do this? We know we've, we've heard and sang all the Sunday school songs about, you know, loving others, but, but how do we do it in the context of when it's hard to do that? And so, if you will, will you join me in reading, just as Jesus would have started and ended his days with the disciples by the saying of the Shema, would you join me and say this together as a body? Here we go. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your, with all your, with all your, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. Next, I want to read this verse that we're going to spend some time in later in the service. And it's found in Numbers 15, uh, verse 37. It says this, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make what? Tassels on the corners of their garments throughout all their generations and to put a cord of what? Blue on the tassels of each corner. Interesting. Let's pray. God, um, as we unpack your scriptures today, we know it's truth. And we know you love us. And so God, we're here today, not for you know, anyone to tickle our ears. We're here to learn from you. We're here to connect with our creator. And so God, I pray that as we lean into you, that our ears would be open, that our hearts even more so would be open. And, and like we talked about last week, God, we wanna hear your word and do what you say because there's life in that. And so we press in, we open our eyes and ears right now. In your name we pray, everyone said, 
Amen. Uh, you might have heard this story before. People use it to describe uh, how we look at different religions or how different religions kind of look at the idea of God. And uh, they use the illustration of there's several blind men. And they're told to go and describe by feeling uh, what an elephant is. And so the first blind guy comes up to the tail and, and he grabs it and he goes, well, obviously an elephant is like a snake. <laughs> it's small and, and skinny and it's got some kind of furry ball on the end. So I don't know what that is. And, and the other blind guy goes, no, 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 no. And he's down on the leg and he's feeling it. He goes, no, 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 no. You like how I close my eyes when I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm a blind guy? Yeah. Uh, and he's feeling the, the leg and he goes, no, 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 no. Elephant's like a tree trunk. It is sturdy and unmovable. And, and uh, another blind guy, he grabs the ears and he's feeling out this, this giant piece, piece of flesh. And he goes, no, it's kind of like paper. An elephant's like paper, <laughs> you know? And, and then the other one, he, he feels the body. He's like, it's a boulder. It's just a giant boulder. And, and we're told that uh, this is what it's like when we look uh, at, at the idea of God or spirituality, that different religions have a, a different feel or different perspective, but none of us have it all right, is kind of the idea. That many of us have different perspectives, but none of us is looking you know, at the whole. Now, the problem with this parable, with this uh, illustration, if you will, is it takes away the idea that one, there's a perspective of someone that's looking at everyone, all these blind guys trying to fill out an elephant. There's this one guy that we don't know who, we know it's not us, right? We don't have that perspective to stand back and go, well, this is the whole truth. Right, And the idea that, that, that that's God brings this further to light that what's interesting for us as believers is we believe that the elephant can actually talk, that he can have relationship with us, and he is the truth. And so it's not just you know a, a, a truth here, a truth there. Jesus and the claim of Jesus Christ is that uh, he is the truth in the way. And we talked a, a little bit about that. But it's, it's easy to kind of stay in our culture today to look at the times and say, it's getting loud, isn't it? When we look at the news, when we, when we hang out with neighbors and friends, the, the, the tension is high, isn't it? And we have all these different perspectives, don't we? We have all these different organizations and, and ideas. We have Republicans and Democrats and leftists and rightists. And we have those from, you know, LGBTQ and, and those from Black Lives Matter. We have all these perspectives saying, here is the version of truth as we see it. And it's easy for me, I don't know about you, to, to kind of step back and go, we live in unique times, don't we? And it seems it's going to only get louder before it gets more quiet. And these, these, this shouting, um, at some point, like we have to, uh, we have to look at this and, and ask some really tough questions. How do we operate in, in the middle of this tension? How do we operate when, when there's our, our own family members have, are bringing a different perspective and it's getting really heated? 
How do you do that? And it's, it's easy to think that this is unique, but actually when you study the scriptures, you find out as King so- uh, Solomon once said, there's nothing new under the sun. Everything that has happened will happen again. And so when you begin to look at even the culture that the disciples grew up in and that Jesus lived in, you learn that it's not so far off from where we live today. And if Jesus and the disciples worked through this and figured out how to love withwardly, then maybe we can too. So I wanna kind of paint for you a picture of what it was like to live in those days. I I wanna paint for you a picture of the different voices, the different perspectives, the political ones, the spiritual ones, the social justice ones, all the ones that are vying as a blind man would feeling around an elephant going, no, this is the, the right way. This is the perspective. And they're all shouting for attention. They're all trying to influence what we know of as God. Does this make sense? And so I wanna bring up this first group here. Uh, You guys have read these before. If you've been in the Bible at all, the first group is called the Pharisees. Everyone say Pharisees. And Pharisees get kind of a bad rap, as they should many times. They challenge Jesus. But but one thing that is interesting to note is, um, yeah, the Pharisees challenged Jesus, but the Pharisees were always there. They always seem to be hanging around him, which you have to give credit to them for that. They do want to engage. They do want to ask questions. Now, they obviously uh, took things too far because if you look at even the word Pharisees, it means set apart. A Pharisee um, in those days, it would be easy to compare them to uh, the majority of, say, conservatives today. Okay, they have um, general moral good you know, uh, thoughts, good actions, but, but it, it's not just about um, just knowing the word, it's about being obedient to it. And so there was this strict obedience to the law. The Pharisees also believed in the afterlife too, which made them uniquely different than some of the other groups. They believed that when you died, this wasn't the end, that there was something more past this. We believe and we know that Paul was actually a Pharisee. So Paul was a part of this group. He actually came out of this mindset. And it's easy. This was, the Pharisees were the easily the majority of the culture during those times. 80% probably of the population could easily be seen uh, from this perspective, from from a Pharisaical kind of uh, point of view. It was all about the law, you know, it was all about doing uh, the right thing. It was about, you know, uh, they loved the law. They loved the rules. They loved the law. They, they, they cannot lie. You other brothers can't deny. <laughs> I'll just leave it there. <laughs> Now, the next group we have was another one you read about. They're called Sadducees. Everyone say Sadducees. And the Sadducees were made up of the uh, wealthier group. They were um, what you would kind of see as um, probably more of a left-wing kind of uh, uh, ideology. It was definitely more influenced by those that had wealth, and they didn't believe in an afterlife. Therefore, you could imagine that um, having things and materials was a pretty big deal, right? I mean, if you had wealth and influence and you didn't believe in an afterlife, well then, yeah, whoever dies with the most toys does win, right? And this was kind of the perspective. This is like the elite 
right? This is the, the ones, they have a lot of influence within the government, within uh, even the temple practices and where uh, the Jews would go to sacrifice for, for God and, and lay down their sacrifices. And they would rule there. They would, have, they would feel a direct link to, to the priesthood themselves from Leviticus. But <laughs> the Pharisees did not like them at all. And they went at it. In fact, the Sadducees were so kind of... Uh, just they loved rocking the boat so much that they would even argue with themselves many times, right? Uh, but this would be the next largest group that we know of. Um, and they, as I said, they don't believe in the afterlife. So there was a, a stark difference. Now, the next group that we have that you might have seen is called the Essenes. Everyone say the Essenes. The Essenes would be your... Uh, extra pious, um, super If you wanted to be in a scene, the first thing you would do in your application is you would sell all your possessions and you would give it to the group. And then for the next three years, you would basically interview and saying like, I'm worthy, I want to be one of these. And what in a scene was basically lived like is they, they looked at the Pharisees and they say, yeah, you, you, you wanna be set apart, but we think you should be set apart more. Uh, when you studied in high school, the Puritans, you remember the Puritans, this would be probably a good comparison to see them. Uh, they didn't live within the city. They, they moved out in a, uh, they call it Qumran. Uh, if you've been to Israel today and you saw where the Dead Sea Scrolls are, where we get our scriptures, last night I said the Red Sea Scrolls, someone told me. It's a little different. Uh, the, the Essenes were the ones that preserved and gave us the scriptures. Our old, the, 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 how we can translate a lot of the scriptures that we have today comes from the Essenes. They had such a value on spirituality, on, on, on the word of God, that they took it extra special uh, care in being obedient. Uh, most of their days, they would wake up, the first third of their day would be spent on just studying the scriptures. The next one third of their day would be involved in just working the fields. And then the last one third of the day would just be uh, consumed with uh, having meals as a community and being pure. They even took this, this idea of being pure to the physical level. And they, they, they're the ones that created mikvahs and where we get a lot of our traditions and, and where we know that John the Baptist probably was influenced for being baptized. All comes from this group called the Essenes. And the Pharisees didn't like them too, because these were, if you will, the super conservatives, okay? These were the ones that were, oh, no, 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 like we're living good, but we're living extra good. We're the special ones. We know John the Baptist probably came out from this group. We see a lot of similarities between John the Baptist, how he lived, and how the Essenes lived. Another group that had a lot of say-so in those times was the Zealots. Everyone say the Zealots. Now, the Zealots, as you can tell, were very zealous. <laughs> You're so smart. Uh, yes, and, and a lot of what the Zealots came to rise out of this need or this desire for revolution. Okay, at the time uh, that Jesus lived and the disciples lived, uh, the Jewish people were ruled by Rome, and Rome would lead uh, these different countries by sending puppets, if you will, and other rulers that would rule on behalf of Rome. And many of the Jews hated Rome. They hated the oppression. They hated the man. 
And zealots were the ones that said, if we're gonna bring about change, the only way it's gonna happen is if we cause disruption, if we bring chaos. And so a lot of what the zealots would do in practicing uh, their beliefs would to bring riots, to uh, cause harm, to bring terror, to bring fear. In fact, they had a special group within the zealots that were literally just assigned as assassins. They would just carry around knives and different political leaders they would find and they would stab them in a crowd. And this was all, it all comes from, you know, the scriptures where uh, it goes back into the Old Testament, the zeal for the Lord has consumed me, David's men. And and this is the heart of it is that if we're going to bring about, you know, uh, a revolution, we're going to have to do it by causing disruption, by being loud, by protesting, do we see a lot of this today? All of these, you may start to see similarities and, and, and go, yeah, we see this, it's a different form, it's a different method, but man, nothing's new under the sun. Now, we know that Peter was a zealot, right? Because one, it's in his name alone, but two, <laughs> I love this, after three years of, of hanging out with Jesus, hearing his teachings, right? About how uh, it's about grace. It's about love, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. And then when Jesus is arrested, what what does Peter even have on him? (laughs) A sword. (laughs) Like this was not what Jesus taught at all, right? This was, and, and yet Peter still is holding on to this perspective, to this idea that in order to bring about change, we has to be through a revolution, through violence if necessary. And so you have many of these disciples that, had, that were coming even out of some of these backgrounds. It was really interesting. Uh, the zealots were the ones, if you've been to Israel too and, and you went to Masada, this, this is where uh, the zealots actually uh, died. This is where the, the movement pretty much ended was on, uh, was on Masada. Next uh, group we have is the Herodians. And like I said, if Rome is ruling through a different puppet, Herod would be the puppet that was ruling over the Jews in Israel. And so there were these loyalists, these Jews that said, uh, I'm loyal to Rome and I believe in the government and I believe that the government should have say so in everything. And not just that, but I find loyalty with our king, emperor, whatever you would call him, Herod. And so they had this kind of loyal following. We read about it only three times in the New Testament, but this was definitely another group that that said, it's not really about spirituality. It's not about that. It's about government. It's about ruling through democracy and and having uh, government as a big say-so in what our culture and how we operate. And the last one that we have here uh, is called the scribes. And the scribes would be kind of described as the, the lawyers of those days. They were the ones in tune with, with all the um, details of the law. They, they knew the law backwards and forwards. And so they were there to, to present legal documents, to uh, work with the people around doing that. And so their perspective was all about the law. It was all about it. Like nothing else superseded that at all. And you see all these different perspectives and this is what it would have been like to live in those days. You have all these different voices vying and shouting and saying, no, 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 this is the right way. No, this is the right way. How do you live? How did they do it? 
How did they successfully love their neighbor to love with word and do it in, in, in a time of tension in times when it, culture could go either way? Government, this view, that view, all are vying and shouting. How do you, in fact, I might ask this question, how do you love with word when your political and social beliefs don't align with others? How do you love with word? How do you do that right? When, when your own family members disagree with you uh, on even social justice issues. I mean, look at the, 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 the Pharisees. They didn't like, you know, the, 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 the uh, Sadducees at all. They were the rich, wealthy influence. No, we don't want any of that. We don't want the super conservatives either. They were all going, how did the disciples and Jesus do this successfully? That's what I want to look at. And Paul kind of gives us a clue into this. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, he's writing to the church in Corinth and he notices something that's going on. He's like, I gotta, we gotta address this because it's, it's, it's the elephant in the room. <clears throat> he says, uh, addressing the church, but I brothers could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as what? Infants. Like you're, you're a bunch of babies. <laughs> Okay, guy, I'm just gonna be real with you. You're just a bunch of babies, all right? He says, uh, I fed you with milk, right? I gave you a baby bottle at first and when you sucked on that thing, right? You just, you just sucked. <laughs> you sucked and, 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 and you would milk this thing, but it's time that you go to solid food for you were not ready for it. So you still suck, <laughs> Right? You're still a baby. Now, what is it? What is it that's making you such a baby? He says, and even now you're not ready for you are still of the flesh. For while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? This isn't spiritual, he's saying. For when I say I follow Paul and another I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So here's what was happening in the, in the church of Corinth at the time is you started to have these different groups come out where, where some groups said, hey, um, who, who's preaching today? Oh, it's Paul. Oh, I like Paul. Yeah, we love Paul. He's great. He's so uh, foundational in his theology. And then another group said, no, 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 no. Paul, man, he's so boring. <laughs> I mean, he, remember the guy that fell out of a window when he was sleeping because he heard his message? Like, that's pretty boring. I love Peter, man. Peter, he's the preacher. He's the shouter. He's the zealot, right? And so you had all these groups kind of forming, going, oh, no, 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 this voice is the truth. This voice is better. This teacher is the wise one. And Paul's going, listen, you babies, you're, you're acting like infants. You're sucking on a bottle. And you're bringing that into every part of your life. At church, you suck. At home, you suck. Like, you're, you're, you're acting like little infants. So th this is how he approaches it. He says, what then is Apollos and what is Paul? Well, here's what they're, they're servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Paul, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but what? Only God who gives the growth. God is the source. God is the one. Remember we talked about last week, the seed, the word, the magic is in the seed. That's God's part. Our part is the soil, right? Preparing our soil. God gives the growth though. It's not man. It's not a person. 
and, or a thought or an organization. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Once again, he's going back to the source. Jesus didn't say, I am a way, a truth in the life. He says, I am the truth. I am the way, right? Uh, Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do, (laughs) all right? And, And we have to remember that. It's not us. It's not by what we do. It's what Jesus did and he's the source. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, the day of judgment, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. So whatever whatever perspectives you're building on, on that foundation, whatever's voices that you're you're building upon, it's gonna be tested. It's gonna be run by fire on the day of judgment. You're You're gonna know things that are true will withstand. So he breaks it down more. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Now listen to this. So let no one boast in men for all things are yours. Listen to this. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death. Are you getting the idea? He's kind of covering everything, right? Present or the future. He's saying this. All are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is yours. He's saying, he's saying, it's the, if you break down the actual Greek, pentagar homonestine, it literally translates, all things are yours. Paul's saying, whether Paul taught it, whether you see this truth in an, in an organization, whether you see this truth in a neighbor, whether you see a truth on the news, it's almost as if Paul is saying this, look, we affirm truth wherever we find it. Why? Because all things are yours. If you find truth in a friend's story, if you find a truth in a news article, if you see truth in a movie, as believers, our job is to affirm those truths, to point them out, to say, this is godly. This is what God is like in our culture. Does this make sense? Why? Because all things are yours. Well, what if it comes from the the Democratic Party? And if it's truth, we affirm it. What if it comes from a a Republican? If it's truth, we affirm it. We don't affirm the organization. Does that make sense? Wherever we see truth, we acknowledge it. We point it out. I've said in a message before, we're like tour guides, right? We're just pointing out the God flavors in the world. That's God right there. Did you see that? Yeah, that's totally God. This is what we're doing. This is what Paul's going, listen, don't get into this idea that, that this, is, this voice is just the truth and only this voice, he's going, that's infant thinking. And if you wanna be mature, remember that all things are yours. And when you find truth, it is our responsibility to call and affirm those truths out. Okay, so Jesus breaks this down a little further in Matthew chapter five, verse 13. <clears throat> he talks about this idea of, of salt and light, and, and it really kind of uh, fleshes out this 
He says, let me tell you why you're here. Okay, this is your purpose, okay? Let me tell you, you're here to be salt seasoning. I love this, this uh, paraphrased version, it's from the message. He says, you're to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage, right? He says, here's another way to put it. If you're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world, God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm gonna hide you under a bucket, do you? No, no, I'm putting you on a light stand. Now that I've put you there on a hilltop, on a light stand, what? Shine, do what? Shine. What? Shine. Shine. Keep open house, be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God, this generous father who is in heaven. So, so not only are we finding truth and affirming that and calling it out in our culture, but at the same time, Jesus is telling us, you're salt, you're light. Now, the important thing that we have to remember as believers is we're not the actual source of life. Remember, that's Jesus. That's God. He's the elephant, right? He is the source. It's not us, but he's saying, you're light bearers. You're salt, right? When you're exposed to the things in this world, what does salt do? It preserves things, doesn't it? It also enhances flavor. It takes the things that are boring, right, and bland, and it adds something, something fresh to it. And this is what Jesus is saying, that's how you should be. That's how your interaction with culture, it should be that much of a difference that people look at you and go, man, there's something, something tastes different about this, man. <laughs> I mean, this light, I, I love it. He says, he goes, he goes what's the purpose of, of taking a bucket and just putting it on top of a light? Think about that. Like, what would be the purpose of that? Of taking 10 lights and putting it on, 20 candles and putting it under a bucket. What is the point of that if it's, if it's gonna just be under a bucket? Well, maybe in our day and time, we might say, well, look at all of our lights in this bucket. Look at this church, we have a lot of lights. But light does no good under a bucket. Light's purpose is to go where darkness is and to expose the darkness because light always beats darkness. And God says, you're the light bearer. You're, you're, you're the salt, right? You're, you're enhancing the flavors of this world. You have an effect where you're at. In fact, uh, there's three different places where we have influence. Uh, one of those places that we have that you see is, is the church. And, and what do we mean by this? It means like we invite people, right? That there's a constant invitation for people, this culture, this world to come to church, isn't it? Because at the church, we have light, right? And so if you're gonna come here, we invite you to come here and the hope is that you'll be exposed to this salt and light and, and you would change your life that you would recognize and say, I wanna follow Jesus. This is where a lot of us, we think this is where light and salt should be at, but there's actually more places. In fact, the other place I would say that we need to focus on more is the marketplace. Now, this is where you go. This is where you work, right? This is 
your neighbors, your family. So this is not you come to us, but it's where I'm at, I'm going to show my light. And uh, if it's my neighbors, if it's my own family, my responsibility in this place is to show off the God flavors. I should be a marked difference in there. And the last place, and this is the rarest place of them all, and this is interesting, is the invitation. This is a space that's so unique that you, God wired you, God gave you special skills, so special that it actually caused the world or the culture around you to invite you into their world. And because of what you bring to the table, because of whatever your talent or gift in something, now you're being invited for your voice to be given. Now, this is really rare, but we're seeing it more and more in our culture. We're seeing more and more believers step into uh, Hollywood now. We're, we're seeing more of these voices uh, begin, hey, which, there's something different. Can you, can you speak to what this is? This is when Paul uh, goes to Mars Hill, remember? And the Greeks bring him in. They invite him in to speak about his God. And this is how it goes. And I would encourage you, there are some people maybe here today that have a unique ability to go into spaces that a lot of us can't go. Whatever it is, uh, you have a, 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 a doctorate in something, you have special skills or talents, and God's calling you to be a light when that invitation comes. It's a unique ability that not a lot of us get to walk into, but something I think we see more and more. All right, so Jesus, he, he continues to break this down more. In Luke chapter 14, he, he kind of continues this idea uh, of talking about salt and light. And then this story happens. <laughs> and we, we find the situation and Jesus reacts by telling three stories to it. And we don't have time to go through all three stories, but I want you to see how this actually uh, fleshes out in the actual narrative. This is what Jesus says. He says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Uh, um, it's of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. So he's saying like there was this, uh, obviously you preserve with salt, but there was also an ability if you mix salt with manure, you could uh, create intense heats. And so uh, a lot of uh, people in that culture would, the last thing they would use salt for, okay, uh, even if it's lost its saltiness, you could still use it in manure to, to, to get a, a good fire. But this is what Jesus is saying. He's going, listen, you, you're so unuseful, right? Your salt is so gone that manure's even better. Manure is better than you. <laughs> this is what he's saying. He's saying, you've lost that much of your saltiness. That much of your light is dimmed out. He says, well, he who has ears to hear, just let him hear. And so this scenario happens. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Now, how many of you know, just by reading that, this would have been a shock, okay? Sinners, what are you talking about? We're talking about prostitutes, okay? We're talking about the outcast in, this, in society, those that everyone looked at and said, yeah, you're not... You're obviously not a God follower. Uh, a tax collector, we, we, we've read some of that in the New Testament. They're not liked, right? They're for the Rome, they're the Jewish person that is for Rome, right? They're as close as you could be to, um, you know, uh, what we talked about, the Herodians there. And, and so they're meeting with him. They're near to him. And this is what happens. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. <laughs> 
I love that word. Don't you just grumbled? Like they murmured. They're just, you just can't believe that. Have you ever been in a place where you, you felt the grumbling, right? And Jesus picked up on it and he goes, okay, okay, I'm gonna tell you a story, okay? He says, this man, oh, go back, one more. This man receives, uh, oh, sorry, this is what they said. This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, okay, so he's calling them out. What man of you, who here, okay, having a hundred sheep, if you've lost one of them, does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. Now, you're, if, you, if you really wanna dive into a, a further study, go look at Isaiah and look at how the prophet Isaiah talks about the shepherds, okay? The shepherds would be the priests in those days, okay? And they were shepherding the people. Jesus is calling the, the Pharisees out here, okay? He's going, listen, uh, you've scattered the sheep, <laughs> okay? So not only is he telling them a story, but he's kind of accusing them. All right, he goes, how many of you would have 100 sheep if one gets lost, would you go after that one? And, and when he finds it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, let me show you kind of the stages here of a lost thing, okay? The first process is you lose it, right? Where did my keys go? Where did, has anyone like had their mask hanging on their face and like done that? Where is my mask? I can't find it, right? There's the lost, okay? You lose something. What happens next? It's noticed. You go, okay, I, I need to find this. It's gone and I need to find it. Next is what we call the pursuit, right? The hunting, the finding. Where did it go? Is it under, did I leave it in the car? Where? And that leads to it being found and then consequently celebration happens, right? I found him, my mask was here the whole time. Okay, so there's this process and this is where we seem to lose ourselves is in the pursuit. We know there's lost, but our focus is easily, we get so set on us, don't we? If I, if I lost one of my kids and I have two boys, it happens quite a bit. Where did they go? Okay. If, if I lose one, what am I going to do? I'm going to frantically search for him. Okay, I'm gonna call friends, I'm gonna call neighbors, I'm gonna get my car, I'm gonna drive around. I've literally done this, <laughs> like last week, okay? If you have boys, you know, <laughs> just this is, it happens. Now, if in the middle of that search, while I'm uh, hunting and driving around, if my other kids came up and went, dad, dad, I go, yeah, what did you find? Did, no, dad, I just want you to know, I'm here. I'd be like, yes, you're here, of course. Are you losing? I'm looking for your brother, though. And, and then the other kid goes, Dad, I, Dad, hey, real quick, I just want you to know I'm here, too. I'd be like, my kids have lost their minds because it's not about them, is it? They're with me. It's about the one who's lost. It's about the one who, who is broken. It's the one who needs help. 
That's the one that we're after right now. And we've all been in that place. And some of us even know people there now. And it's our responsibility, one, to see truth. We call it out, okay? We see that. But part of our resolve, too, as believers is to have a pursuit of the darkness so that we can shine our light, so that the God flavors come out. Does this make sense? This is, this is how God designed it, and this is how it should be. Think about this. Um, when God gave the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, right? That, that, that him dying on the cross became your ticket, your open door to heaven and, and the fruitful life. When he gave that to us and he gave this incredible message, how did he send the message to the people? He didn't give it to angels. They, they weep over it, it says, the scriptures. Instead, he gave this incredible gift and he gives that responsibility to you and me. And he goes, this good news, the only way it's going to get out, the only way the light is going to spread is if you do something with it, if you take it out. So earlier we read about in Exodus when God instructed his people to put tassels on their garments. And then it said on these tassels that you should put a blue cord, right? A blue uh, uh, string, if you will, in the tassels. What is the purpose of that? And more importantly, why the blue cord? What does blue you know, have to do with anything here? And what does it have to do with, especially with what we're talking about? This is a, a prayer shawl. It was actually bought uh, in Israel. This would have been worn uh, by Jesus, uh, by many of the rabbis. Um, and you'll notice that on there, um, just like in this picture, uh, give me the priest picture first. Yeah. Do you notice what color's prominent in the, in the priest's outfit here? It's blue, isn't it? You'll notice those blue colors kind of on here too, but then you'll notice these tassels that hang down here. Now, even in today, in modern uh, Jewish times, um, you'll see they'll wear tzitzit, they call it, and it would, it, they wear it under their clothes even. You'll see these, these uh, tassels hanging out the, the bottom. Have you seen this before? Like, yeah, you'll notice them. And here's the unique thing about these is the tassels, each string um, you'll see is, is kind of knotted together. And between each four corners here, you have, with each one of these knots, a representation of the 613 total knots, which is exactly how many laws there is in the Old Testament that God gave them. So, so it's a physical uh, something that, that you literally have on you that's saying, um, my life is found when I live how, how God described me to live, prescribed for me to live. When I live according, so, so there's this reminder everywhere you go that there's life when I'm obedient. But then he says, there's a blue cord in it. And what is the blue cord about? Now, what's interesting about the blue cord is to get this color blue was really hard, okay? In fact, uh, you'll see this picture of this snail here. Um, it is called uh, the Murex trunculus. And it is rare, extremely rare, found near uh, the, the Mediterranean Sea. And when you break into the kind of the spinal column of the snail, you, you get a little kind of blue 
kind of violet purplish color. And when you put that on cloth, it actually, uh, that's where we get the term because it's so rare, royal blue, because it's the colors of, of kings and priests, if you will. It was so rare that it would actually, it would take you around 50 or 60 of those snails to make the blue cords for each corner of your tassels. Now, you say, why the color blue? Well, if you saw the color blue in a Jew, as a Jew in those days, you instantaneously would have thought of that picture of the priest. And then when God comes down, when, when he gives the 10 commandments to Moses, after he gives it to him, he gives this instruction found in Exodus chapter 19. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. I love that. Among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So he uses this phrase, you're to be a kingdom of priests to me. Now, the Jews, if they heard this, they would have instantaneously knew because they lived in Egypt at, this time, at that time, right? They just came out of there where, where in Egypt they had worshiped, we, we believe, close to 1,500 different gods. So you have temples after temples after temples. And in those temples, what would you have seen? A priesthood. You would have seen these priests. Now, what does a priest represent? Here's what a priest represents. He's the one that mediates the divine. So, so you can, if you were to go to Egypt in, in those times and go into a temple, you couldn't just go, I'd like the God of the sun, please, to come talk to me. Please, God of the sun. You wouldn't have that because you would have a representative, a priest that would come and speak and mediate between the two parties. So the world can't just access these gods. When he says a kingdom of priests, he's saying, you're a mediator. You are to be a kingdom of people that is representing me to the world. Uh, they do this also because they've served as the hands and feet of the God. Right? They're actually enacting the sacrifices and doing those things. They're authorized to speak on God's behalf most of the time. And priests are also the best representative to what God was like. This is what it meant to be a kingdom of priests. In fact, you might say this, to sum it all up, a kingdom of priests could also be saying this, you're the message. You're the message. You're the representation of God out there. You are God's message out there. We say light and, 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 and salt, but you're the message. You're the one conveying to the world around you and your neighbors, this is what God is like. We're getting ready for Bronco season. Any Bronco fans out there, right? You're gonna start seeing these jerseys. And, and when you look at a jersey, it, it's all about identifying, isn't it? When you look at a jersey, you've got these symbols. It's got the NFL logo, okay, represents that. And it goes more specific. It's got the number and it's even got a name. And when you wear this jersey, you're representing someone. Instead of your last name on here, 
you're a jersey with the name Yahweh, God. Remember we talked about that name, Yahweh, last week? Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. You're the message. You are the jersey. You're the one that when people look for God, they're seeing you. God said, you're the mediator. You're the one that, that, that people are looking for when they're hoping, when they're wanting life, when they're looking to the creator. They're looking to the priest, the kingdom of priests. It's what me and you are. Does this make sense? Yes. Is this clicking? Because if we were to get this, it would change everything. It would change everything, right? Because... If we, if we live this way, we'll see light shine even in the darkest places. So the question we have to ask, how do you love with word when your political and social beliefs, they don't align with others, right? One, we, we, we affirm truth. We recognize that we're the message in this, that we're proclaiming what God is like. But what do you do when you're in those situations where your social, political, spiritual beliefs aren't in agreement, and maybe it's within your own family too, a friend, a neighbor, what do you do when, when you're the one in the room and you have a, a influence, when you have a, a, a something to bring, what do you do as a believer? Here's what I would say. Use your influence and actions to serve others in a disappearing ministry. What do we mean by this? John the Baptist was described as having a disappearing ministry. When we think of John the Baptist, we don't think of this, you know, Billy Graham kind of like, oh, he had such wise words when we looked at, no, we look at him and we go, he had one job and it was just pointing to Jesus. And every time someone tried to point at him, he just kept going, no, 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 it's about Jesus. It's not about me. It, it was almost like he was trying to quickly get low, as quickly like move and shift attention. No, 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 it's about Jesus. And this is how he did it. He practiced this in constantly pointing. He used his influence. He used his actions to point to Jesus. And when we get in those situations, there's two things here. We point to Jesus, but two, we learn what Jesus did on the night of his death. How many of you know the last lesson you teach is probably pretty important? And Jesus, with a room of disciples, some with some backgrounds as, as um, you know, uh, uh, the loyalists, as, as the um, agitators, as, as uh, some influence of the Pharisees, you have this eclectic group with all kinds of influence. And Jesus says, when you're in that room and the tensions might even seem high, what is the best thing to do? What does he do? He bends his knee and he serves. He washes the feet of the disciples. He says, I'm gonna teach you the greatest lesson as a leader. When you're in this place where, where you don't know even what to say, when, when the voices are shouting, if you don't know what else to do, here's what you do. Get on your knees and serve and serve those around you. Leverage your influence, leverage your actions as a person to create a disappearing ministry that just points to Jesus. 
It says it's about him. You're a light. You're the salt. See, see, when we talk about this, this it's, it's about pride and being humble, really. It's about, when you think of that, it's about gaps, okay? Uh, Bree, Dan, would you guys stand up? Face each other. Come up here a little closer, yeah, so you can see this. I want, I want you to see this. Face each other. Now, this is, this is what pride says. Pride says, uh, Bree's gonna go, uh, I'm gonna elevate myself, there you go, right? She says, she says, my thoughts, my perspective, my ideas, they're above yours. Do you see how that works? Okay, it's about gaps, okay? But what humbleness does, what serving does, okay? What Jesus taught on that last night is you don't, get, you don't have gaps this way, you create it another way and you bend the knee, you serve. Yes, there you go, Dan. <laughs> It's a hard thing, isn't it? <laughs> Give him a hand, come on. Does that make sense? It's a gap thing. It's about understanding that when we, like John the Baptist, when we get low, when we learn to serve in those situations, how many of you know you can't shout, you can't yell, you can't raise the, the, uh, the uh, um, tension in the room when you serve? <sighs> it's something beautiful. When your light is actually just shining as it is, it's a beautiful thing. Lastly, Peter in, is giving this word in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9, and, and, and we're going to close with this. I love this. He says, but you are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood, remember, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people right? Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, as, as tour guides, right? As exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, from sin, which wage war against your soul. But listen to this, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your what? Your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It's as if Peter's going, listen, at the end of the day, okay, if your mouth were duct taped and you couldn't say a word, would your jersey, would your message, would your life be enough for people to look at you and say, that's Jesus, that's Jesus, that's different, that's salt. That's light and darkness. Would people, without you, it's almost as if Peter's going like, okay, um, obey God. Obey God and be a light in this world. And if you have to, use words. <laughs> right? You're the message. Your life is the light. I'm the source of that light, okay? I'm the source of it, but go shine. Lastly, we talked about that name in the last week at the very beginning, Yahweh. It's such a reverence, such a holy name that the Jewish people, even to this day, they won't even spell it or say it. It's a sacred name of God. In fact, there's even a commandment we talked about. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. Directly related to the name Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. Would you say this with me? Breathe in and go, yeah, and go way. Do it again, yeah, way. 
Do you notice something here? Every time you breathe in and breathe out, you're saying the name, the most holy name of God. You're representing him, even just breathing. Don't take his name in vain. Don't misrepresent it. Shine your light with purpose. And when we do this, I think the world will see and they'll invite us because they want that life. Would you pray with me? God, as we look at these non-negotiables, it sounds so easy, love God, love others. But God, it can be hard sometimes. And God, I pray that you would allow us to be a light in a dark world. Let us, some of us here, God, we've lost our saltiness. It's just been about us. It's just been about inside these four walls here of this church. And God, you don't want a light to just shine here. It's meant for out there. So allow us to be the light out there, God. And out of this, may we see a whole new generation start to come back to you. In your name we pray. And everyone said, amen, amen. amen. Now church, may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you. May you be obedient to God. And as you are doing that, may you point out truth, affirm it. And may you let your light shine, baby. Was this good? Did, did God say something? Did you connect? Good. All right. Real quick, if you're coming next week, reservations, don't forget about it. We need you to go online to reserve if you're gonna get that. Also, if you're new here, we wanna connect with you. Go to our website, jfc.org forward slash new. We wanna send you something, guys. Until then, we love you. We'll see you next week.